Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real-world data. Well, welcome back to another episode of Real World Talk with CODA. Today, I am very pleased to have as our guest, Paul Sims from Inpatient Health. Welcome, Paul. Hi. I would give an introduction of you, but you've had such a wide array of experiences working in and related to the pharma industry, and your name has been associated with being a pharma provocateur, which is quite an interesting title. So can you tell us a bit more about yourself and how you got into the work that you're doing today? Sure. For 17 years, I was running a company called IFA Pharma, which was acquired by Reuters in the end of 2019. What that did was it actually was very helpful. It put me in touch with everybody in the industry and a lot of senior leaders and allowed me to really understand the the trends and the beliefs. And that was a very, very interesting journey indeed. And since leaving there nearly a year ago, I guess I've positioned myself now as being someone that can work on unusual projects in our industry. I believe that our industry is still very young. It's not mature at all, and it still has a huge amount of evolution ahead of it. And indeed, there is so much unfulfilled potential in terms of getting healthcare to patients and actually being reimbursed for it that I'd love to bridge that gap in more interesting ways than the ways we're doing today. So luckily, working with some really exciting people on making a lot of that happen nowadays, And I have some long-term ambitions, which we'll probably talk about later in this conversation. Nice. Yeah, it's definitely, for as long as pharma has been around, I do agree, in the long run, it's still a young industry and there's still a lot to figure out here. And I think there are so many different relationships, right, that happen with the pharma industry. There's a relationship between pharma and regulators, pharma and providers, pharma and academic researchers and scientists. And of course, there is pharma and patients. And that has, you know, I think there obviously pharma provides a lot of benefit to patients with the pharmaceuticals and the treatments and therapies that they develop. But there's also been strain right in that relationship as well on whether it's from pricing perspective or others. And I think Every healthcare company, right, not just pharma, every healthcare company strives to be patient-centric, and some do a better job than others at this. And the way that I think about that, right, there's like a kind of idealistic patient-centricity, whereas if you strip away all the market drivers, government structures, and all the restraints that we have in place, right, there's, okay, the ideal of what patient experience would be. But we can't really ignore those other forces that are at play. So when we think about patient centricity, right, how much should we be pushing the constraints of the existing forces and challenging them, right, to kind of rethink the way that they're structured versus how much do we work within them so we can get a practical solution out there? Well, the truth is, Zoe, I don't think that we are patient centric. And I even think that we probably never will be patient centric because the truth is that when we say we are science driven companies, it means we're science centric. We are trying to find chemical and biological formulas that actually work for the patient. So yes, 
we serve the patient, but rarely do we actually come up with solutions by working backwards from what the patient thinks. And rarely do we look after patients unless there's a drug involved. I mean, if a patient stopped taking the drug of a pharmaceutical company, would they continue to care deeply about that patient? Probably not. So the truth is that we're not patient-centric. And even worse, I think, is that patient centricity is a very difficult thing to define. And therefore, everybody's version of it is slightly different. And of course, it creates some skepticism behind those that don't really understand it. I think we should be talking about patient advocacy. And I think we should be talking about patient engagement, which are two much more definable things. And those two very strong steps that we should be taking as industry to ensure that we actually deliver things that are useful. I'm actually a little bit disappointed by most people's approaches to patient centricity since the pandemic began, because in reality, this should be a bit of a reset moment, right? I mean, our patients' lives have changed in the most part as a result of this. Yet, at the moment, we're kind of thinking, hey, we can speak to lots of patients over Zoom and thinking that somehow ticks the patient engagement box and we can actually progress further with our existing plans. I think that almost demonstrates how non-patient centric a lot of organizations actually are, because really we should be thinking about uh, ethnography and almost expanding the range of what we do for patients as a result of this pandemic. If you think about it, we ask patients a little bit to sort of tick the box, and then we go forward a little bit to tick the solution box. If we were all true designers, shall we say, true designers of patient experience, we would be trying to immerse ourselves in the patient's lives in order to understand them as fully as we could. And then we would be using far more artistry, creativity, and open-minded thinking to actually come up with the solutions. But we actually keep to a pretty narrow box overall. And I suppose one of my campaigns at the moment is to try and expand people's thinking as to what's possible, both on the understanding and appreciation and alignment side, and on the solution and the delivery and the creativity side. I think there's so far to go from where we are today. Yeah, I want to probe a bit more on the patient engagement side, because of course, Biopharma companies serve many more patients than they can really reach in a deep level, right? So short of being able to do that, right, what's something that they can do to really increase their level of engagement? You mentioned kind of immersing themselves in what the patient life is like, right? And I think having worked in pharma myself, right, I've seen that in practice a little bit, for example, in thinking about how do you design a pill pack to make sure to encourage kind of adherence and taking the right number of pills every day, right? Like there's some very specific product implications, but then kind of more broadly, right, Is the patient engagement going to influence things like R&D? Is it going to influence things like the way that they design trials and the endpoints that they report to the FDA? I mean, you know, to what extent and kind of where does patient engagement impact? One day patients will design and create their own medicines. That's something I believe. Obviously, that's a few years off yet. So perhaps let's talk about something a little earlier than that spot of where you mentioned immersion. If you wanted to learn to drive a car, you're not going to be able to practice on every single road in the world, but you can certainly give yourself the best experience possible on a narrow set of roads so that you'll be more competent when it comes to those future roads you haven't encountered. But you don't do that by reading a book on driving. 
you don't do that by sitting in the passenger seat while somebody else is driving. You actually have to get an instructor and drive the car. You'll never really understand and appreciate it until you actually take that step. So I think that we as pharma companies should be doing everything we can to either um, immerse ourselves in patients' lives by being with them. And if proximity in COVID-19 is a problem, then perhaps we can simulate what it's like to have the disease ourselves in, in various different ways. And there's lots of different versions of how that might be possible. And a lot of companies have done this kind of thing because you only fully appreciate the problems when you feel them, when you experience them. The other side, of course, is then being able to convince other people that you need to be reimbursed and the value needs to be apparent on the healthcare delivery side. So, you know, if you come up with a digital endpoint that you've discovered is really important and really different from the current standard of care, convincing a payer that that is also important is going to be a difficult thing. So I'd like to see us think a little bit more creatively about how we can actually give an experiential situation to others. Because even the physician, in most cases, has never experienced the disease. I'm reminded of a, one company that uh, specializes in pain, and they actually continually had a problem with patients who would describe their patients as a 7 out of 10, but the, the physician would always just assume that really they mean a 3 out of 10, and they're just lying, really. And this company actually created a box, it sounds kind of frightening, where they put their arm in and actually experienced what a 3 out of 10 or a 6 out of 10 or a eight out of 10 actually feels like for the physician. And all of a sudden, the relationship there changed, as you can quite imagine. So right. the closer we get, the better. And we seem to think we're doing okay in the pandemic. But in actual fact, we've been set back quite a long way just by the lack of proximity. We have to use creative digital ethnography and other ways of actually getting that immersion, that closeness that, that we need to actually deliver the value that we're looking for. Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree with that. I think there is no replacement for really trying to understand that experience, like you said, right, from trying to simulate it for other people, or at least shadow, right, someone for a week, more than just, you know, an hour of saying, okay, take me through your routines, because there is an element, you know, I've done a little bit of work in design thinking before, right? There is an element if you put people on the spot and have a very specific question, it's a bit of a leading question, they might emphasize certain things. It's not quite the same as just seeing them in their natural element. And so focus groups, while they can be valuable, I think is still extremely different from actual ethnography and seeing people in their natural context going about their routines and just being a fly on the wall for that, for sure. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure everybody listening and watching this will probably be nodding their heads because it makes a lot of sense. But the truth is that it happens in such a sporadic way because you get very high emotional intelligence people who come into a company and actually put together a program that enables this. But they then leave the company a few years later and it doesn't stick. What we almost need is a systemized way of making these kind of things happen so that even if we are uncaring in our natural personality. These are still processes that we have to go through to bring a medicine to market. I often say you don't have to care to be patient-centric, which sounds almost paradoxical, but it should be <laughs> systemized to such a degree that that is actually the case. Because right now, even those uncaring people have to find clinical data to get a medicine onto the market. Unfortunately, they can get away with not having so much of the other data that might be required. So it has to be systemized at both ends, both within the pharma company, but even more importantly, at the regulator HTA payer level. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I think we could have an entire other podcast just talking about all the different tactics that we could use for that, whether it's behavioral nudges or actual more institutional policies. I think that is a really fascinating space. Maybe pivoting a little bit, right? So we talked about companies that have direct impact on patients, right? So a pharma company creates a drug and that is directly consumed by a patient. And so there is a direct relationship there. What about other companies in the healthcare ecosystem that work more in the background, who, whether it's because of regulations or just the nature of their work, really don't come into direct contact with patients? And how can they think about, you know, and I'll kind of at your encouragement, right, stop using the term patient centricity, but like, how can they think about patient engagement or patient advocacy as a way to help inspire and influence and guide their work? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that in most companies, the people who are working on the front lines are not necessarily the people determining strategy or working in so many other aspects of the business. I think this is a problem of internal communication as much as anything else. It's uh, actually quite a, a simple formula. And the problem at the moment is that people like the medical affairs parts of companies are they're more important than they used to be, but they're still not revered as much as they should be as the sort of bastion of authenticity within the company and the people who are on the front lines the messages might get through to one or two layers but they don't necessarily penetrate all the layers of the company what is this i think this is i think this is better leadership quite honestly i think this is leaders who care who actually walk the talk don't just give lip service and also speak externally. One of the issues I have about leadership in healthcare is that um, we only talk ever about things we've done or things that we're doing at the moment. We never talk about the future and what we'd like to do and what's possible. And you know, we didn't. You don't use our imagination in our communications. I believe that if uh, I call it the four A's, it starts with ambition. That creates a level of attention, and that then creates a level of accountability, and that creates action. So. Four A's. If our leaders actually spoke with a bit more ambition about what it is that we could do for patients, that would attract a bit more attention from our industry and the wider patient populations generally out there. That would then create the accountability that we actually need to actually drive that stuff. So it not doesn't just become lip service or it doesn't just penetrate only the outer layers of an organization. And finally, that's what creates the action. So my four A's People, you know, kind of came up with my forays when I was thinking of bigger things like sort of moonshots where you say, I'm going to go and uh, fly to the moon. And, you know, even though most people think that's impossible, the fact that you said it actually now creates attention. People like Elon Musk use this every single day in, in their companies and, and, and Jeff Bezos and people like this. So I think that having a little bit more forward thinking publicly from leadership would actually generate a much stronger response internally because we know that that accountability is going to be something that people are looking for and looking for us to achieve. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you're right, right? It kind of starts with that first step of even setting the goal and just one person, hopefully someone who is you know in a leadership position, setting that goal and saying, hey, it's, we don't know if it's possible to achieve this yet, but at least it's possible to list this as a goal. And I think that's a really important first step. And, you know, I think of, for example, diversity in clinical trials. I mean, we all know that has historically been an issue and continues to be an issue just because by the nature of where clinical trials are, the additional support and kind of resources that it takes for the patients who are on them. And so there naturally is a slight um, selection bias in terms of who who enrolls and 
I think it definitely takes a lot of leadership to recognize that that is an issue and to say, you know what, we are actually going to try to change this and we're going to change that landscape. I think even from a CODA perspective, right, we curate real world data. And for us to say we want our data to be more representative and one of our goals is going to make sure that in our network, right, of providers that we're going to cover demographics that closely represent kind of the population of the U.S. as possible. Are we completely there? Definitely not. But I think it makes a difference to hear that stated as a goal. Yeah, it's so easy to say this is important and that we're going to move in the right direction. So easy to say those two things. A little bit harder, but still quite easy to say this is how we're going to be two years from now and actually be quite specific with that. Then all of a sudden you've created a bar for yourself. You've created something that actually differentiates yourself as well. And yes, you've created a bit of a tension. Now the world is going to be checking whether or not you actually achieve that. Is that a problem? Well, actually, I don't think it is because it's the right kind of attention that you actually want. It's the not the wrong kind of attention with everybody else who's still, you know, not actually making uh, much of a movement on this. So that's what I mean by ambition is, is not just saying let's move in the right direction, but let's say we're going to go here. And there's a big difference. Yeah, in the two. for sure. So as a health data company, I have to ask you about data. And you had mentioned earlier that somewhere off in the future, you think patients will be designing and creating their own medicines, right? But off in the future. Mm-hmm. But something that patients have today is data. And that's obviously something that is very important to a lot of research, whether it's curated under a controlled setting like a clinical trial or just naturally generated in the world the way that real world data is. And there's been, you know, a lot of different arguments out there about how much ownership a patient should have over data, not just from a a rights perspective, right? I think everyone recognizes that patients have a right to their data and and privacy of their data. But even then, right, as a patient, again, going back to the immersion and thinking about how a patient actually interacts with data, I might have a right to my data, but I've never seen any complete EMR record of mine at all. I've seen highlights, I've seen some reports come out, right? I've seen a doctor summary of it. I've never actually truly seen my health data. And some people would argue that that's okay, because what am I going to do with that anyway? I don't have the expertise to go analyze it and create a prognosis for myself and contribute to research in any meaningful way. But at the same time, you know, it is my data and maybe there are things that I could do with it. So, you know, what are your thoughts on the relationships that patients have with their data and what they could do if they had more ownership over it? I think it's pretty patronizing to say that a patient shouldn't have all of their own data because they don't know what to do with it. Firstly, I think that you shouldn't underestimate patients. That's something that I've learned over the years. I I once had the idea of trying to make my um, conferences when I ran events for a living as patient-centric as possible. And actually, it was someone else that had the idea of actually putting patients in charge of the conference, not just making the conference about them, not just inviting them to be part of it, but actually letting them run the whole thing with pharma companies still as the main attendees at the event. And firstly, it was a joy to watch them actually curate this process and put it all together. But on the day itself, what we saw was a roller coaster of ingenuity. 
you know, everything from parents who designed computer games for their own children to people who'd hacked into their own healthcare devices to people who created lobby groups and changed the way in which the government operates around a disease. The amount of incredible innovation that patients had come up with, you know, several orders of magnitude less budget than a pharma company was absolutely incredible. So firstly, don't underestimate what some, not every, but some patients will do with the data. Also, don't patronize people in thinking just because people don't become mathematicians, it doesn't mean we don't teach them math at school. Base level of knowledge is still very, very important. Cater for low levels of health literacy, yes, but enable those with higher levels of literacy to go further. And then the final thing I'd say is that for the majority of people, we don't want to become health data informaticians. We don't want to become the expert in our data necessarily. We always have to strive for the simplest way that patients can derive benefits. And the simple way is not have a patient read and understand 10 different graphs on their health and then determine what useful and reputable advice should be taken to actually you know, take those things forward and learn how to look after themselves. That is too much to ask. There is so much opportunity here for turning this data into almost passive but actionable information. Think of video, the world of video. It used to be very hard to make a video. You know, you needed a Hollywood studio once upon a time to do it. Then software became available and all of a sudden people started to direct their own home movies. Then YouTube arrived and people realized you don't have to direct a whole movie. You can just direct a 30 second snippet and it will actually gain huge popularity. And every step changes the nature of what a movie mm -hmm. director could be. But YouTube still suffers from actually having to know what you want to create, what you want to look for, what you want to search for, what you enjoy. And now we have TikTok, where for the user's point of view, it's delivered completely passively. Like there's no choice whatsoever. It's an algorithm that chooses for us. So the benefits have become easier to obtain, but the effort required to get to those benefits has been reducing steadily over time. And I think this is happening in other markets. Look at retail. Once upon a time, you had to go to a store. Now, all of a sudden, of course, you can choose what you want to buy online, but you still have to know what you want. But there are companies like Stitch Fix and, and others that send you stuff before you've even <laughs> asked for it. And then you simply choose what you like and leave what you don't want. And the algorithm learns over time what it is that you prefer and what you don't prefer. And again, you've got a less friction, less choice, more passive system that still brings you the benefits that are required. So why won't this happen to healthcare? Well, I think it already is in from tech companies, from Apple Fitness and Peloton and Fitbit, Google owned. All of these companies are trying to find ways to pre create preventable and wellness care in a more passive way without you necessarily having to understand every mm -hmm. single graph, but to actually get the recommendations for your lifestyle fed to you. Why can't we do that with, with drug development as well? The reason I say that patients will create their own medicines one day is because they will passively feed their own data into a system. That system will be comparing the data with every other patient in the world and will be actually making recommendations for you. It's a very straightforward formula, actually, because every kind of industrial era that we go through, we get an exponential increase in productivity because if you think about the first industrial revolution, that was the creation of machines. But then machines helped you to create better machines. 
then the next in revolution was computing and computers helped to make better computers. And then the next revolution, software, software helped to make better software. And the new one, AI, AI will help to make better AI. So there's this exponential increase every single time. So as we feed more patient data in, that will help make better solutions as well. And we'll actually see a rise. And that's why I think that it's actually quite likely, not even that far ahead of from where we are today, that patients will passively be able to upload their own information into some form of system and that will help personalize some. It's kind a very of interesting form. idea. And I think it makes a lot of logical sense. I do wonder, right, the fact that the healthcare industry is a bit more behind in this than we would say the TikToks of the world. Do you think that is because there is a lack of motivation and drive to get there? Or are there truly other constraints, right? Where the worst consequence of Stitch Fix sending you a box of clothes that you don't like is that you send them all back, right? Obviously, a lot more significant consequences if some kind of medical recommendation is incorrect or leads you to misinformation or leads you astray in some way. So uh, almost going back to that first question, right, is this, you know, kind of a constraint of the type of information that we're working with? Or is this that we're just not pushing that far enough and the drive and the leadership just isn't there? Yeah, we are a necessarily conservative industry, safety first. And when we're talking about drugs and drug development, it's very difficult to be experimental in that kind of way and very difficult to be compromised on that way. But I think that we suffer in our industry from thinking we start by the point of, of the medicine and the chemistry and the biology involved. Why not start at the patient where actually some of the preferences can be slightly more trivial perhaps, but they might actually make a big difference for the patient. It could be something as simple as dosage. It could be something as simple as where and when they take their medicines or the fact that they could take them in a home environment rather than a hospital environment. I'm very interested in the movement towards making that happen. So yes, starting with the, the raw science, it probably does look a little bit scary that we can't be as experimental here as we might wish to be. And maybe agility simply won't work in these kind of areas, even though it actually does. But yeah, let's start, however, with the patient and work backwards. And this is why companies like the Apples and Googles of the world think that preventative care and medicine is a whole world of opportunity. Whereas in pharma, we think, oh my God, how do we ever create a business model that works in that area? We don't even have anywhere to start because we can't even create preventative clinical trials. So let's just forget before we've even started. Let's just give up before we've started. So I think it just depends on your perspective and where you're coming from. And this again, goes right back to the first question. Are we truly patient-centric or are we science-centric mm -hmm. really? Yeah. So, you know, thinking about that science centric versus patient centric, right? What do you think is one thing that the biopharma industry today is doing right by patients? And what's one thing that we should really try and change immediately? That's a good question. And strangely, I think I'm going to give the same answer to both. Because what we're doing right is we're allowing the incredible explosion of science and scientific possibility to continue, which is amazing. Some of the, the new possibilities made available to us in the lab and even in the clinic now, truly mind-boggling. The ability to reprogram cells to conquer disease is pretty yeah. astounding. But there is less money in the system. And the truth is, can we afford to pay for all of this incredible medicine? that is actually very specialty in most cases for rare diseases. Now, if you're a rare disease patient, of course you're going to welcome some incredible new way of saving you when there was no treatment that previously existed. Of course you are. But 
for the vast majority of people, we're seeing a lack of ingenuity now. Companies have all pivoted towards specialty medicines um, because we can get to where we can get the higher margins. Now, on the one hand, you could say that's pivoting towards amazing science. I'd say it's pivoting towards areas that we don't necessarily have the ability to cater for. In the same way that if every car company in the world decided to make a Ferrari, that would be great because Ferraris are wonderful cars. But the truth is that less than 1% of people could actually afford one. We don't all need a Ferrari. A lot of us just need the most basic car that we can possibly get our hands on. And we need, I believe, to refocus who's responsible for innovation in our organizations. Is it just the R&D department that is obviously exclusively focused on amazing science? Or is it those of us outside R&D who need to find new pockets of value and cater for them in more chronic and mainstream disease areas? I think that there's a strong argument for the latter, given that there's such a lack of money in the system as a result of the pandemic. And this kind of cell and gene therapy dawn that we've all hoped for because it could do some amazing scientific things, will it actually be affordable? in two or three years' time? Is it even ethical to be expecting us to charge the same sort of prices that we had in our plans two years ago when we embarked upon this journey? I don't know. Of course, there's a sort of difficult place in the middle, for example, in oncology, where some of the most amazing specialty medicines could actually cure a large number of people because that's the nature of cancer. It is ultimately lots of specialty diseases all wrapped up in a single phrase. So again, oncology perhaps is the special case as it often is. But in general, I think those of us working outside R&D need to feel that sense of responsibility. Innovation is no longer the sole responsibility of the R&D department that will take a decade to respond to COVID-19 because anything in R&D takes a decade to respond to. That's just the nature of the large tanker that it is and actually trying to move that tanker in any direction takes a massive amount of effort and a lot of time. Can those working in commercial areas find areas of need by working backwards from the patient and serve them far more quickly and ideally get reimbursed for them as well far more quickly than R&D can? That's perhaps how we're going to sustain our industry over the next few years. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree that I think innovation should not only be R&D's mandate, right? It should be so many other functions as mandate. And I think we've shown, right? I think the pandemic has shown that when there is a directive from leadership and when there is a directive from society, for example, figure out a vaccine, it can happen. And it can happen a lot faster. And if we just apply that same kind of urgency and drive to areas outside of R&D, I have no doubt that it can happen as well. Yeah, necessity is the mother of invention. So when a COVID vaccine was needed, everyone pulled together. But I regard the fantastic work that those people on the front lines have been doing as a little bit of a heat shield. The rest of our industry has actually not transformed. The 90% of us are carrying on and operating in quite a siloed and slow mentality still. I don't think that's acceptable. I don't think we're learning from those people on the front line yet. So my hope is that we do indeed do so. I hope that some of this collaborative attitude and reimagination of how things need to look could actually proliferate to the rest of our organization. It's not going to come easily because the truth is that you don't start manufacturing before you even finished your clinical trials. There's a perfectly good reason for not doing that in most lines of science. So, so some things we can't get over. 
But certainly the more collaborative attitude and various other different initiatives should be transferable in the same way that in motorsport, you know, you've got, I'm going to go back to um, Ferrari again, Ferrari's cars on in motorsport might end up dictating how the road car could be improved for the vast majority of people. So it might take a few years to get there. That's the only problem. Yeah. Well, I think you started going into what's going to be my last question for you, which is, you know, what are your goals for yourself and for inpatient health and by extension, the biopharma industry? My short-term goal is to carry on working on with amazing people doing unique work that's going to bring healthcare to the world. I mean, what I say to people is, you know, if you're looking for a new CRM system that might incrementally improve the way you do things, there are plenty of people you can go and give a call But uh, to. But if you want to create a new department that doesn't even require a CRM system because it's, you know, unique in some way, then that's when you should give me a call because that's the sort of project that I can possibly help you with and work well with you on. I do also have a, a kind of longer term goal, which I mentioned at the very beginning, which is I believe that everything that we've done in the digital space so far is kind of really only the first version of what we could be doing. We've really only explored the conversion of what happened offline into an online picture. We've taken offline promotional activity and turned it into online promotional activity, but ultimately the foundation is still the same. But if you compare it to the world of the internet, the first generation of internet companies, Web 1.0, have pretty much disappeared. You don't hear about AOL and GeoCities and uh, these kind of companies anymore. (laughs) But that was Web 1.0. And Web 2.0 are business models that could only exist online. You can't imagine an offline version of Uber. You can't imagine an offline version of Snapchat, right? So these things could only exist And the only thing that changed is that the internet became faster and more ubiquitous. Well, the same thing's happened again here in this pandemic. We've just become more ubiquitous in our digital, but we're going to see a new generation of business models come about now because of that ubiquity. COVID is not just an accelerant. It can be a lot more if you want it to be. And it gives that new opportunity for a different type of business model to thrive. I believe one interesting business model is a new type of pharma company that doesn't own its own drugs. It works as a partner to all of the people that do own their own drugs, like biotech and academia. And it works a bit like the Apple App Store works. It actually allows you to reach the market, helps you reach the market, and takes a share of the future revenues of that medicine. But it doesn't own the medicine itself. So I'd like to, in the future, create an organization that basically helps the commercialization of medicines to a range of partners for asking no money up front. Okay, which is very different from how it is now. And I think it would completely transform the nature of what it takes to be a biotech entrepreneur and get your medicine to the world. And it's actually a business model that is starting to emerge. There's a couple of prominent companies, one of which is called Eversana, that are actually doing this kind of work now. And I think it could be a game changer for our industry and for patients. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely agree. I think there are so many different paths that pharma could take in the future in terms of models. I think we're seeing some of it already, right? So I'm very encouraged by that. And I think it's so important to have voices such as your own really emphasizing this and kind of going back to your four A's, right? Being that voice of ambition that really starts to get everyone thinking about this and not only thinking about it, but also taking action on it. So really grateful to have you on our podcast today. It was great to chat with you and makes me want to talk more about these topics. <laughs> and other well, we'll turn the video off, but carry on for another couple of hours. Yeah, if you like. exactly. <laughs>
Maybe we'll do a revisit when patients are designing their own medicines. We'll come back to the conversation. So yeah, that'll be in just a couple of months then, yeah? Yeah, of course. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks again for joining us today, Paul. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, Zoe. Enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real-world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.